Welcome to Mindful Social, the show that intersects mindfulness and emotional intelligence with the hectic online world we live in today. Hey, I think you're really going to love this week's show with guest Oren J. Sofer, who wrote Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. So what do we really want in our communication at home, at work, in our community? We want teamwork. We want a sense of understanding, a sense of being in this together. How do we have real respectful conversations with each other, even when we don't agree? It starts by being able to have empathy for each other, our basic human needs and values. This opens the door to more creativity, better understanding, and a greater experience of choice and empowerment in ourselves and in others when we bring more awareness to the conversation. You're going to love this. Listen up. This is a really hard book for me to listen as an audio book because I keep having to stop and think. And so I'll listen to like 10 minutes sometimes <laughs> and then I'll stop and then I'll ponder that for a while and then I'll go on. So it took me a lot of time to finish the book, but it was because it was so good, not because it was so hard. Great. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be here, Janet. And um, yeah, it's a rich, it's a rich book. There's a lot in there. So I'm, I'm always pleased when I hear people tell me that they're taking a long time to read it because that's my hope is that, you, you know, it can sort of seep in slowly over time. Mm, yeah, no, it's wonderful. And, and it's so applicable to how we're living our lives today where we're running so fast mm. that saying what we really mean and stopping to really communicate rather than just saying something and moving on is challenging sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. The, one of the things that I um, always like to point out to folks when I'm teaching, which I, I acknowledge in the book as well, is that when we're trying to be more intentional, mindful, um, deliberate about our speech and our communication when we, when we really value, um, having our words and our relationships reflect what's, what's true for us in the deepest sense that we are up against a huge current in our society and culture that's pushing us in the other direction. Because so much of technology, social media, um, advertising, the entertainment industry, um, sales, all of that is creating um, an internal experience, a mental space, and even a, a kind of patterning in our nervous system towards fragmentation of attention, disembodiment, uh, and instant gratification, <laughs> all of all of which are the complete opposite to to skillful, meaningful conversations that are effective. We need to slow down. We need to be here. We, it takes time. Um, it's complicated. So um, when people tell me that they're having a hard time or struggle struggle or struggling, I always say, "Of course you are. <laughs> First of all, you've got you know decades of conditioning in yourself that you're working with. Plus, we're swimming." in a cultural and a societal milieu that's that's going against the tenets of more effective, meaningful communication. Mm. Now, I think something that really 
resonated with me from the book was that the, uh, the concept that when we're entering a conversation, we bring so many assumptions and so many preconceptions with us mm-hmm. that we're not actually present in the conversation a lot of the time. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about assumptions and drawing conclusions in advance of a conversation and what we can do about that? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> it's so it's our minds are so powerful. And I think that it's one of the first insights we have in contemplative practice that our our filters perceptually, uh, conceptually are to a large degree creating our experience of the world and that the ideas that we have and the views that we have actually color and influence our experience of reality and of life. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think for many, for many of us, uh, the, the first step is, is just even recognizing that our beliefs and our views are just that, that they're not real, that they're not what's real, that they are one perspective on reality that might have some truth to it. Um, but it's not the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And so just that shift in and of itself requires a certain level of humility, um, a certain level of, of curiosity and openness, and, and a kind of wisdom that recognizes the way that I see the world, the way that I experience myself and others is not the only way to experience things. So that's, that's the foundation. Um, then I, I think there's a there's a, a process of clarifying what do we really want from a conversation, from a relationship, um, and not stopping at the surface level and the immediate response. The immediate response for most of us um, is, well, I want what I want. <laughs> you know, like, I want you to do this, or... Uh, I want to get my way, or I want, uh, you know, our elected officials to pass this law or behave in this way, or so. Um, and of course, there are situations, particularly when we're looking at safety, um, when we're looking at human rights and dignity, when the outcome uh, is really the ultimate goal, where we're trying to protect life. Um, and when we're trying, when we're talking about the safety and, um, existence of species, ecosystems, and human beings, then in many circumstances, dialogue, uh, is not the most effective and expedient option, right? That's where we start looking at nonviolent resistance, organizing, um, because the the safety and protection is the first priority. So I say that up front to, to clarify what I'm about to say, which is when we look at what do we want, for the most part in many of our conversations and relationships in life, we're not immediately engaging in areas that are about physical safety. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be some, but for the most part, we're looking at things that um, are of a different order. And in those situations, 
if we step back and really consider not only what I want, but why do I want it? And what do I want the other person's reasons to be for engaging with me and agreeing or working together? We recognize that um, we want more than just getting our way. We also want understanding. Mm -hmm. We want people to work with us, to change their behaviors, to listen, to agree to our requests because they understand the value behind it, because there's some meaning in it. Uh, and we see time and time again in our lives when we get other people to do things because we have more power than them, because we're forcing them, because they feel afraid, because we're using guilt or shame or blame or coercion or manipulation or any of these strategies that we develop over time to get our needs met. When we do that, there's a bill to pay later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost in the quality of our relationship. It comes with a, a cost in goodwill. And it often comes with a cost in the quality of the outcomes. So if we're looking at a work situation, you know, all of us have probably been in situations where either we ourselves, colleagues or direct reports, um, are doing something without that sense of buy-in. They're doing it because they have to. The boss said so. I'll get fired if I don't. And what are the results? They're often mediocre. Mm -hmm. versus when someone really has buy-in to doing something, they put their heart into it and the results are more sustainable, creative, helpful. So, so how do we, this is kind of like a long arc to your question. How do we deal with uh, our assumptions and, and, you know, having conclusions before we get into a conversation? I think we actually, it's not just about, um, will be aware of your assumptions. Yeah, that's great. But that's often not enough because we're attached to our assumptions. Mm -hmm. we, we get fixated on our conclusions. So we need something. Uh, we need a deeper motivation to give us a reason to um, create more space inside for something other than the, the preconceived idea we have about the other person, the situation, or the outcome we have. And what that is, is a different orientation to the relationship and the conversation. One that recognizes if we can really understand each other here, it's going to work better for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the, the fundamental things that I teach in addition to this skill of being more present, which we've already touched on, um, is how to have more helpful clear and transformative intentions in a conversation. And one of the most powerful is the intention to understand mm -hmm. how can we get on the same page here? And if we come into a conversation with that intention, that automatically is going to begin to suggest that we hold our assumptions and ideas a little bit more lightly. It's not that we throw them out altogether, but we recognize, yeah, here's how I'm understanding this situation. And maybe here's why help me understand what, what's going on for you. Yeah, that's really crucial that we give the other person that space to define what truth is for them and what it is that they want to get out of this. You had a really interesting graph in the book mm -hmm. that, compares okay what am i thinking and what are they thinking and what am i feeling and what are they 
feeling. Right. And I think that most of the time we are so out of touch with how we're feeling mm-hmm. conversation, unless we're aggravated or something that's really obvious. But yeah. you know, that that feeling of being safe with someone, um, what I kind of gather is that a lot of that is about creating safety for the other person so that mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. actually speak more clearly to us about what their truth is before we start telling them what our truth is. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're touching on a, a number of things that are really rich, Janet. And um, this this last part that you just said is um, the underlying thing that I'm hearing you point to, um, which is, again, it's a kind of it's a kind of wisdom that we develop um, when we really start looking at our lives uh, more closely and wanting to understand the way things work. And that wisdom is that everything that happens happens in relationship to everything else. Nothing's <laughs> <laughs> in a vacuum. Exactly. In other words, if you want to, a certain outcome, there's certain conditions that are going to create that, right? If you want to run a marathon, you know, I need to train, I need to treat my body well, I need to stay hydrated, I need to get enough sleep, I need to stretch, right? Those conditions need to be in place to run a marathon. If you want to have an effective conversation with someone else, if you want to deepen your relationship, with someone else. If you want to deepen your relationship with yourself, mm. there's certain conditions that need to be in place. And so one of the key conditions, so this is what we've been discussing is what are the conditions that lead to more effective, meaningful conversations? Well, presence, being able to show up and be aware. That's the first having a clear and helpful intention. That's the second. Um, both of those together, what they contribute to is this sense of safety that you're pointing to. And um, the there's a famous study, now famous in some circles of organizational development uh, and communication that Google did in the last few years about um, what makes a, a team effective. Mm-hmm. And the number one factor that they found in highly effective teams was not the IQ of the participants, was not having an inspiring leader, um, it wasn't even good communication skills per se. It was psychological safety. Mm-hmm. The experience of members on the team that I can disagree with someone and I'm not going to be shot down. Um, I can express how I'm feeling and it's going to be received. So that sense of being able to listen to someone else and give them an experience of feeling heard um, communicate through our actions and our words that we are genuinely interested in understanding them and including the values and perspective that they're holding in the situation creates that sense of psychological safety that then um, leads to a different kind of a dialogue. And there's a very simple principle here, which is basically that other people are more willing to listen when they feel heard, mm-hmm. right? If you if if you feel heard, you've got more space to hear me. And if you trust that I'm actually genuinely interested in what's going on for you, and I'm not just trying to steamroll you and get my way, there's a whole amount of energy 
that gets freed up because you're no longer having to put all of your energy into defending yourself and making sure that the thing that you care about happens because all of a sudden you have a willing partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that I thought was really interesting that kind of segues into this is the idea that we can have empathy for the person that we're speaking to Mm -hmm. without necessarily agreeing with them. Just because we feel for them doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that we're rolling over. That's right. Yeah. And bringing that into the conversation really allows us a lot more space too. But how do we get to that space? Sure. we're, We're talking about activation and deactivation. How do yeah. we how do we do that? Because most conversations, especially in the workplace, there's a lot of activation going yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Let's um I want to answer your question in a different way first, and then Please. let's get to the activation, deactivation, nervous system stuff. Um <sighs> empathy without agreeing. Um and not buying into our own conclusions and judgments, Mm. uh, being aware of how we're feeling in a conversation. I want to kind of try to bring these together. So um, one of the reasons why a lot of times in a conversation, particularly if there's some kind of a disagreement, um, people don't listen to the other person, or if they do listen, they don't acknowledge what they're hearing is because there's this mistaken notion that if I give you any ground, if I kind of acknowledge my understanding of what you're saying, then by default, it means I agree with your interpretation of events and I'm somehow acquiescing to what you want. And so this is where the, the, the training in nonviolent communication and the particular model that, that Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who, who founded nonviolent communication, um, offers comes in really, really helpful. And this is the distinction between, you could say different levels of reality or just different levels of our experience. So on the one hand, the level of experience most of us are operating on most of the time is our thoughts and interpretations, right? Um, he's being rude. Uh, she doesn't care about the project. You're being selfish. Um, this is ridiculous. It's inappropriate. All of the judgments and evaluations and interpretations that we make about other people's situations in life. Those have often a grain of truth in them. They're based on something, but there's still a story that we're telling. It's a certain interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we get into arguments about is our interpretations and also the particular strategies that we, um, that we, that we prefer. So, um, I'm trying to think of a couple of different examples, like in uh, a friendship, um, I want to have um, a big party. No, let's just have a, a, a more relaxed gathering with a few close friends over. Those are two different strategies, and we could argue all night about which one we're going to do. Um, or uh, in a professional situation, you know, the um, the administrative staff saying, you know, um, You don't, you don't, 
you don't respect us and you just push us around and think that we're here to just do your bidding and the supervisory staff saying, you know, um, we do respect you. We're just, we just need things uh, quickly. Mm-hmm. And and we're not hearing each other because we're just arguing about our our perceptions of the experience. So one of the ways to get underneath that, in order to hear each other, to not be too fixated on our interpretations and conclusions, is to start to identify how we're actually feeling. What are the emotions that are present about this situation? whether or not we share them and not in every situation, it's not always uh, welcome or helpful to share our feelings, depending on the level of connection, safety, um, the car- kind of relationship we have with someone. Um, but if, if we're not aware of how we're feeling, it's mm-hmm. pushing us, it's pushing us around because it's, it's still present. So for our own sense of autonomy and power and choice, it's helpful to be aware of what emotions are present and more importantly, and you know this from the book, why? What matters to me? Our emotions are signals, they're information that point to our deeper needs. There's something important. Otherwise, we wouldn't be feeling anything about it. We wouldn't have any judgments about it. We wouldn't be talking about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, we're not fully aware of what matters on a deeper level to us in a situation. Um, you know, uh, you're, you're always bossing us around. I want some appreciation for my work. Uh, I want respect and dignity to be treated, uh, as a fellow human being rather than as a peon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need stuff quickly. We want, you know, we're not trying to, uh, you know, disrespect you. Um, I want teamwork. I want understanding. I want a set, I want a sense of ease in our work communications, a sense of flow. So you can see right there the conversation around, um, you treat us like, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can you tre- say it. <laughs> okay. You treat us like crap. You know, you, you, you treat us like shit and, um, you're, you're not a team player. That doesn't go anywhere. Whereas mm. the conversation of, listen, we really want some more appreciation. We want to be seen and valued for the work that we do. And we want more teamwork. We want more flow. We want more ease. That's a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. And we can clearly see the difference in those two conversations, that one is openly combative and the other one still could be combative, depending on how you say it. It it could be, but there's more room to understand each other without agreeing with the interpretations, because I might not agree with your interpretation that you treat me like shit, but I can completely honor and and acknowledge the fact that you want to be treated with respect Mm -hmm. and you want to be appreciated and you want to feel valued for your work. I can acknowledge that without agreeing with your interpretation that I'm not doing that. Right. Because I'm just seeing the truth of your experience as a human being and what matters to you. So this is how we can begin to empathize with and understand each other without agreeing with the interpretations. We have to get down to a deeper level. And that's the level of our human needs, our values, and what matters to us. And this takes training to be able to listen in this way, to be aware of our own experience in this way. Mm-hmm. And this starts to open up the um, the field for um, more creativity, more understanding, and also um, 
a greater experience of, uh, of choice and empowerment in ourselves when we're aware of what actually matters to us. The, the classic story that I, that I tell, um, that's, uh, it's not mine. It's from a colleague of mine, um, is the, that illustrates this difference and the effect it has on us individually is the story of a, a, a habitual smoker, right? Who, um, heard this perspective that which which we're talking about comes from humanistic psychology. It started with Abraham Maslow, and then Carl Rogers took it a step further, and then Marshall Rosenberg integrated it into nonviolent communication, which is the perspective that part of what makes us human is that we are driven in life. We are our life orients around a certain quality of fulfillment that we're trying to fulfill our needs. And that that's part of what it is to be human. Just like plants turn towards the light, human beings try to meet needs. Mm-hmm. And, and that we have more than basic needs. We have our, you know, our physiological needs, safety, shelter, food, air, water. But those are called basic needs for a reason because you're not meant to stop there. <laughs> that, that we have needs for understanding, connection, trust, touch, play, joy. And we have higher needs for meaning and contribution and spirituality and transcendence. So, so the distinction is the distinction between what we want, which are our strategies, our ideas about meeting our needs and why we want those things, which is the deeper need themselves. So everything we're doing, we're doing to meet a need. So back to the smoker, reaches to have a cigarette and he pauses and says, well, okay, well, why, why do I want a cigarette? You know, what needs am I trying to meet? So everyone listening, you can take a moment and just consider, you know, what needs might this person have in, in lighting up a cigarette? So he wants to relax. He wants to take a break. He wants to take his mind off things. Um, he wants some satisfaction, some pleasure. And as he becomes aware of that, he recognizes, geez, I've got way better strategies to relax and take my mind off things than destroying my health and my lungs and wasting my money on cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So when we're unaware of the needs we're trying to meet, we are bound to continue compulsively repeating the same behaviors without actually knowing why we're doing it. As soon as we become aware of the deeper needs that we actually have behind our choices, we start to have a very different level uh, of clarity and empowerment in our lives because we're seeing more clearly what it is we're actually after. Mm. That's so important, just being, just noticing, oh, okay, why am I doing this? And right. what am I going to get out of it? And is that really yeah. how I want to get there? It's a practice that you, that, that you can do, that one can do all day long, just mm-hmm. with any activity. With, it's, it's a really transformative um, meditation, really, is just during the day, periodically ask yourself, what do I need right now? Why am I doing this? What needs am I trying to meet? And you will, and it takes, it takes some uh, training to start to become aware of needs. And what we mean by, what I mean by need is not something selfish, 
uh, self-centered, demanding, dependent, needy, weak, all, <laughs> all the cult- things, all the cultural <laughs> associations we have with this very charged word need. Mm-hmm. What I mean are the core motivating factors of human life. Why we get up in the morning, things like belonging, acceptance, joy, vitality, um, engagement, contribution, exploration, fun, adventure, joy, laughter. These are our, these are our deeper human needs. And, um, uh, there are, you can look up, um, a human needs list online and, and download different ones. There's some on my website on the resources page of my website, uh, that you can download for free from my book. Mm-hmm. And so just having that question in the back of our mind, we start to realize, gosh, I don't want to be doing this and the needs that I'm trying to meet, it's not actually working. And so we start to make changes in our behavior and then we start to feel a sense of deeper fulfillment and purpose in our life as we become more conscious of our needs. And I mean, I I think this is, this is not just about um, feeling a little bit more satisfied or comfortable in our lives. I think that this is about transforming our society. And, you know, the, the famous quote from Thoreau who says, the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation, right? We don't know what we want. We don't know why we're doing the things that we're doing. We're just fulfilling someone else's story about what it is to live a life. And we see the results. We see the results of being programmed by um, uh, a it's not even a capitalist society because it's not true capitalism. There's all, there's all kinds of things going on in the economy that are subsidizing, um, uh, ventures. So I, I'm not even going to get into that, but you know, the, the whole structure of our society and culture, um, that tells us that our happiness is to be found in, um, having more possessions, um, looking a certain way, and having certain experiences mm-hmm. um, rather than actually being in touch with ourselves and asking ourselves the hard questions about why am I here on the planet and what's meaningful to me and what do I want to do with this time that I have? The more people are asking those questions and really looking within to see what do I need here in life and not, I need a new car. That's not a need. That's a strategy. You know, I, I need to feel alive. I want to, I want acceptance. I want belonging. I want, I want meaning. Then we actually start making different choices about how we spend our time. And, th- and, and the more people do that, the more we start to see, um, a, 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 a tidal wave shift in a culture. Mm-hmm. away from the kind of disposable instant gratification culture that we have and towards one that's more human centered, that's more sustainable, that's more in touch with the earth and the, the needs, not just of ourselves or other human beings, but the needs of other life on the planet. Mm-hmm. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend who happens to be a therapist and we were talking about sort of this And he said, you know, I have people come in to see me and they just bought, you know, the best Tesla or a Maserati or whatever. And this is like the fourth car they bought in a couple of years. And then they come in and say, yep, that didn't fix it. That didn't fix it. That didn't fix it. Yeah. 
And when we can see ourselves doing that, when we can see ourselves reaching for Amazon and going, why, what do I need that? What's yeah. it going to do for me? Right. And uh, it's hard, yeah. especially I live in Silicon Valley. So yeah, this culture is pervasive everywhere, but here it's so yeah. pervasive. Yeah. And there's something to be said for, um, you know, one needs a baseline of basic needs being met, right? We do need a certain amount of security and stability. We need a place to live. We need um, food and water and clean air. And, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to, to move beyond those the strategies for those uh if they're if those aren't met and so there's a certain amount of work to be done you know particularly here california in the bay area where there's such a housing crisis right to say well how do we provide more basic needs how do we use the wealth that does exist and the human resources that do exist to make sure that people not only in this country but around the world and you know as the refugee crisis increases with climate change like how do we provide the basic needs for more people so that they can ask these questions and turn towards um, the larger questions in life? I want to get back to your um, your other question about the activation in conversations, and it kind of ties in even to this sense of the kind of incessant hunger for something to fill me up. Right, that sense of of going online and and shopping, or you know, having another experience, keeping up with the Joneses, that that whole uh, pattern that can keep us running and chasing after the um, perpetually receding goal our whole life. Mm-hmm. We don't actually slow down enough to to question the process and and see the results of that that seeking that they're empty that they don't deliver um so there's a certain there's something we can't think ourselves out of this we can't think ourselves out of being defensive in a conversation well, sometimes uh, you know certain thoughts can help um but also and we can't think ourselves out of craving or obsessive um uh seeking for material possessions and experiences because those those patterns and habits are exist in the mind and the body at a deeper level it's something that's happening in our nervous system it's something that's happening in our emotions and in a more profound way it's something that's happening um kind of in the structure of our consciousness uh, which might be might be another conversation that's that's going more on the meditative side of things but um this sense of when i'm stuck in something whether it's feeling defensive and activated in a conversation or going online to try to shop for one more thing the resolution happens in the body it doesn't happen on the level of thinking because what's happening is there's a certain pattern that's running in the body and whether that pattern is fight flight mm-hmm. with the um you know in the conversation where i need to defend myself or i need to dominate or i'm trying to disappear um or it's a uh, the other side of sympathetic activation which is oh i'm going to get something good this is going to be good oh look at that it's so glitzy i can't wait till it comes you know <laughs> should be here tomorrow and then the next day it comes you're like wait what did i order 
right? It shows up at the door. You don't even remember because the, it's past. So what's happening is that there is um, energy flowing through our nervous system and through our body. And in order to not get pushed around by that energy, in order for our words and our actions to not be defined by that energy, we need to meet it directly. We need to have some resources inside to anchor our attention somewhere else other than the rush of defensiveness, aggression, um, anticipatory excitement of getting something. So this is where some of the tools of contemplative practice come in is, is to learn how, number one, to recognize these patterns in our mind and body, the racing thinking, the narrowing of the visual field, the shallow breathing, the sweaty palms, the tight throat, the knots in the stomach, you know, whatever the particular configuration of sensations are, we have to first recognize that, which means developing a certain baseline level of awareness in our mm -hmm. life. And then once we recognize that, we need someplace else to put our attention. It's like if you're trying to cross a river and the current is strong, you need firm footing or you need a pole or something to ground. If you're, you know, walking into the ocean and the tide is strong, you know, you've got to have a, you got to have your knees bent in a stable stance underneath you or you're just going to get bowled over. So we need an anchor. And one of the, this is one of the things I go into in the book more, uh, just the whole training of mindfulness, of being able to learn how to anchor your attention somewhere in sensory experience that is more reliable than the tide of energy that wants to sweep us away. And so that might be your breath. It might be the weight, the weight of your body. It could be the sensations in your hands. Um, I'm here at my desk so I can show you, you know, it might be a smooth stone. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I have an intense meeting or conversation, I'll take one of these stones and just have it in my pocket to hold. It's just heavy enough that it's grounding. It's smooth enough that it's comforting, that kind of thing. Um, or sound, you know, just noticing sounds come and go, or even visually connecting with something in the visual environment where you can rest your eyes and just anchor with something that you're seeing and just be aware. And what we find if we develop this capacity is that the defensiveness, the aggression, the desire, the craving, they're temporary. Mm -hmm. It's it's a swell of intensity of energy that if we don't engage with it, if we just create some space to feel it, it will pass. It will it will move through. And so over time, the more we become familiar with that process in our own nervous system, the more agility we develop in handling the intensity of activation in our own body and still being able to make different choices, <laughs> whether, whether it's about, you know, opening up the phone to look at social media or, or shop or, um, not saying that hurtful thing in a conversation that's going to create a whole problem for us later. And so that is the process of deactivation. Well, so that, that sets us up for the process of deactivation. So it's first, it's the noticing of the activation, mm -hmm. then it's anchoring the attention somewhere else. 
then the deactivation happens naturally on its own because it's the nature of things. It's a natural cycle, just like, just like the day and the night, just like the seasons, just like the in-breath and the out-breath. Um, you know, the nervous system wants to deactivate. It wants to come into balance. And depending on our life experience, if we've, if we have, uh, experienced a certain level of trauma, uh, we might need the support of another person to deactivate. Mm -hmm. Um, so particularly with trauma, what happens is that natural mechanism of getting excited and then relaxing, getting angry or defensive and then settling gets dysregulated. Mm -hmm. Um, we all get dysregulated with, with, with post-traumatic stress disorder, that dysregulation kind of gets locked, it gets stuck in the system so that we end up and there are different configurations, but we either end up, um, kind of stuck on all the time, which has been my pattern. And one of the things that I work with from, you know, various childhood trauma, um, or we get, so that's like hyperactive or we get stuck off where I can't do anything. I have no motivation. I'm kind of sort of really lethargic or hypoactive. It's very, very low. Or there's this pattern of I'm on like high alert, go, 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 go until I finally burn out and collapse. And then I flip to the other one. Mm. That's a very common one. Um, or, or there can be these kind of wild swings between the two in a very disorganized way. So, you know, if you notice those patterns, um, doesn't necessarily mean you have trauma. It could just be a certain level of dysregulation, particularly in our culture. Um, our culture doesn't value deactivation. Right. Our culture doesn't, doesn't value rest. You know, there's a Starbucks on every corner. Mm-hmm. Because the whole ethos is just go, 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 do more, get more, be more, have more. So there's no value for the exhalation, for the rest after the accomplishment, for, you know, the lull after something happens. That's a very valuable space because that's the space of nourishment, of healing, of integration, of reflection. Mm-hmm. So the deactivation happens when we we notice those spaces. When we start to pay attention to an outbreath, a pause after someone says something, what it feels like after you finish eating, after you hang up the phone, after you send the email, after you take a shower. It's the ending. The deactivation is the ending. And we always rush past it onto the next thing. And so we get to the end of our day and we're exhausted and we get to the end of our life and it feels like we haven't lived because we've never slowed down to actually experience the completion of things. Mm-hmm. This is, or this is to appreciate them or to appreciate them. Exactly. Yeah. So the deactivation is in, is in that sense of being able to recognize the shifts. And you can, you can start to practice this just by paying attention to your outbreath. Every time we breathe, there's a little deactivation in the outbreath, a little activation with the in-breath and a little deactivation with the outbreath. So just take a deep breath <laughs> and, and appreciate the little bit of relaxation that comes when you breathe out. And that's how you can start to develop a taste for the sense of settling and rest. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I do is, you know, when I feel myself building up to something, 
mm-hmm. than it is just taking that long out breath, mm. just letting it go and feeling that settling. Yeah. It's huge. And it's actually pretty life changing if you do it regularly. <laughs> it is. It really is. It can change your whole day just taking a few, you know, a deep breath every, every so often. And, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of, if you want to have, if one wants to have more meaningful relationships and more effective conversations, you know, there, there are two things I would say. One is go for small changes. Don't go for the big catharsis. Just make, just make one small change and stick with it. Like take anything that we've talked about on our call, whether it's pausing in a conversation, uh, being more aware of how you feel, trying to trying to identify what matters to me, what do I need here, um, listening to the other person, and really trying to understand them, and and offering that understanding back to them. Actually, taking a step and extending yourself and and saying to the other person, you know, here's what I get, here's what I'm hearing, if I got it right. You know, um, and any of these things, just take one of them and that will start, you'll start to see changes in your life. And the other, the other thing, you know, if we're interested in transformation in any form, it's something that we, if we, if we're really looking for something different in our life then it means bearing that in mind to some degree all the time. Mm-hmm. Being present as much as we can. Being present is 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 the foundation, but it could be anything else. It could be, you know, it just depends on what you want to shift, what you want to what you want to transform and work on. Maybe it's having a sense of purpose. So being aware of what needs you're meeting. Maybe it's being more in touch with your heart. So it's asking yourself, how do I feel multiple times a day? Um, maybe it's taking better care of your body. So it's asking yourself the question, what does my body need right now? Um, but the key is that we're always practicing something. You know, the mind is a learning organism. It's, I was going to say learning machine. It's not a machine, but it's designed to learn, and it learns in part through repetition and also through observation and investigation. But what we're doing, the way that we live is continually reinforcing a certain pattern or habit in the mind. It's the property of neuroplasticity. So there's a author named Sherry Huber who has a book, a Zen teacher, has a book called How You Do Anything is How You Do Everything. Hmm. And it's that sense of our lives are holographic. You know, the way we relate to one moment contains within it the patterning for how we relate to everything. And so if you want to change anything, or let's say it the other way, if you want to change everything, just change one thing. You know, just pay attention to pay attention to how you make breakfast. Pay attention to how you get up in the morning. Pay attention to what your mind is doing and how you're relating to anything, and that will start to affect everything in your life because it's the same mind that we're with all the time. (laughs) So, you know, we wonder why we're depressed or alienated or anxious. It's like we're walking around with your mind all the time, and how much are you taking care of it? We have to learn how to take care of our mind. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really, that's really the foundation of relationship and conversation is what we're doing with our mind. So, um, so the good news is that, um, it's never too late and that, that dramatic, um, dramatic and profound transformation is possible. And, um, it just depends on our level of, of commitment and our willingness to, to put forth the energy. Mm-hmm. Or we can just stay the where we are, where we are <laughs> and be really miserable all the time. Right. And send and watch the watch the planet go down in flames. It's and this is the you know, this is this is the task, is that what's what's required, I think, of us is not just the personal transformation. And I, I don't think it's enough. I don't I'm not I don't share the view that if more of us are just more awake, eventually there'll be a tipping point and the whole world will change. I don't think that's true. I think that there are forces structurally and collectively that also need to change in and of themselves and that um actually i'll refine that it's not that it's not true it's just that we don't have enough time Mm. it is true because if enough people change yeah there will be a transformation but there's not enough time for that so um i think that the, the the work for transformation needs to happen simultaneously on the individual and on the collective level in terms of working for policy change organizing advocating for um, different systems, laws, institutions that can start to um, rein in and, and um, rein in and restructure the systems and the institutions that that are running our lives and destroying the the foundation of life on the planet. Mm-hmm. I think I, hmm. I think one of the things that I hear a lot is the word transformation scares the crap out of people because Hmm. they see it as something that is going to be huge and earth shattering. And if it isn't, it's not enough for them. Uh, uh And so I think it's really important that people realize that transformation can happen at a very small level. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a domino effect or a butterfly effect, if you will. Right. Right. But you can do very small things that initially seem like they don't have huge impact, but they will. Yeah. As long as you keep doing them. Absolutely. And that's, I'm glad you bring that back. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a transformation junkie, so (laughs) I can get all inspired about it, but absolutely. And in some sense, it, it, in one, in one way, one could say that there are only small transformations. Um, but the 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 impact of those are far reaching and we don't see it at first but and which is why i said that the first the first way of looking at it is just take one thing and make it and make a small change and you know just think about the impact of being able to pause for like a moment before responding to someone or before hitting send on an email just that Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's going to change. That's going to change so much in so many people's lives just to be able to take a pause and consider, do I really want to say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where am I coming from? Is this really going to be helpful? Just, just a beat of consideration, you know, or how uh, going back to where we started from, how quick we are to jump to conclusions. 
if we can start to if we can start to notice that process, right? We notice how we're making an interpretation based on our feelings and our unmet needs. Oh, I'm making an interpretation instead of being in touch with what's actually going on for me. Just that awareness that we're making an interpretation mm-hmm. is huge. Just to be able to notice that and not take it as reality. So these these small shifts are in some ways not small. They appear small on the surface, but they can really shift the whole the whole way we're relating to something and give us a lot more space and freedom inside and a much richer terrain for um for engaging. Hmm. I'm trying to think of um this is this is one of my one of my my weak weak spots as a, a speaker and a and a teacher is stories, and I don't I tend to not remember stories, but I know that it's it's really important because it's how we learn as as human beings. So I'm I'm trying to think of a story to just illustrate um, illustrate this. Well, I, I, okay, I'll, I'll give a story just from just that happened today. So uh, on on a small shift. So uh, going back to what I said earlier about. Um, you know, being a kind of in do mode all the time and how we can get dysregulated and how that's one of my patterns that I, you know, I accomplish a lot. And if I'm not paying attention, I can kind of just get swept away in the busyness of things. And mm-hmm. So one of the things that I have worked on over the years, particularly in conversations, is if I'm feeling impatient with someone because I'm moving mentally at a faster pace than they are, I'm right wanting to get ahead, move on to something to just be able to hang in there for a little bit longer, right? You know, to just say like, okay, Oren, you know, just just give it give it another 30 seconds. Like, just give it another minute, you know? Let's see where this goes before you jump in and cut the person off or say like, mm-hmm. hey, I, I don't have time to talk or I, I see you laughing here. It's <laughs> something you can relate to. Definitely. Right. So- um, Can we get on with this, Oren? Yeah. Come on. Absolutely. <laughs> So, um, so my, my dad called me today, my dad's mm-hmm. in his late seventies and, um, he doesn't call very often. I'm usually the one who calls him. And, um, I often tell him, I say to him, I say, you know, dad, um, I actually call him Ab, which is short for Abba, which means, which means father mm-hmm. in Hebrew. I say, you know, Ab, I, you're, you're welcome to call me anytime. I love to hear from you. Even if I can't talk, it's always nice to just hear your voice. So the fact that he even called, and we had had a few text messages and so forth, the fact that he even called was meaningful in a way and registered, right? So, and this is, this is about half an hour before our, our phone call. So, I, you know, I got to set up the, the microphone. I've got someone coming over later to set up the, the camera for my online class that's happening tomorrow and all this stuff. So this is a busy afternoon for me. So he's, you know, talking about just random stuff and kind of catching me up on stuff that is not at all timely. It could happen later. Right. And, and I'm, you know, and so I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, like, when am I going to tell him like dad, you know, like, I really don't have time to talk right now. Can I call you later tonight? But I, 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 you know, I, I hung back a little and I asked, I said, you know, how, how are you doing? How's it going? And so he shared with me, said, you know, yesterday was a hard day because it was the anniversary of my brother's death. Hmm. And I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that it, that it was the anniversary of his brother's death. And had I not slowed down, had I not asked, we wouldn't have had that moment together. 
And so again, it's a small shift. It's just like that sense of like, yeah, I can wait a little bit longer in the conversation. And then just through that space, something beautiful happens. Yeah. And then I did, you know, a couple minutes later when he moved on to some other stuff, I, you know, I just interjected and said, Hey, Hey, Ab, you know, um, I've got something coming up in a little while that I need to prepare for. Will you be around later tonight? I could call you around nine, you know, and he said, and he got it and it was great. Mm. Yeah. How many times have we done that? You know, because I know, uh, my parents are gone, but my partner's dad calls a lot and he Mm -hmm. has very long conversations and Mm. most people don't get to the heart of what they're really feeling what they're really thinking if you don't give them the space they start with the weather they start with whatever's wrong but they don't really speak their truth unless we give them that space yeah yeah, and it takes it takes practice to be aware of our own nervous system and what's happening inside yeah. to recognize it if we if we're not giving someone that space and mm-hmm. know and knowing how to regulate ourselves so that we can create that space. Yeah. And speaking of space, you give me a lot of your time and I oh. really appreciate it. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's would been you, a pleasure, yeah. Would you tell people where they can get the book? how to find you on the interwebs? Sure, sure thing. Yeah. So Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication is available um, in bookstores and online anywhere that you get your books, audiobooks. Um, where you can find me, um, I'm on social media at Orin J. Sofer, O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R. Um, and my website's orangejsofer.com. If you want to stay in touch or learn more about my work, the best way to do that is to sign up for my monthly newsletter. And it comes with a free guided meditation series and a short ebook on contemplative practice. And uh, you can do that on my website, orangejsofer.com. Or if you're listening on your phone, um, you can actually do it right from your phone by sending a text message. This is a little high tech here. Send a text message to the number 44222. And put the word guided, G-U-I-D-E-D, in the text message. And you will get a text back with a link, and it will give you all the information to sign up. Hey, thanks for listening to Mindful Social. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email to Janet at JanetFouts.com or visit my blog at JanetFouts.com for more shows just like this one. Please don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends.